Hello, you are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. Happiness and Horticultural Therapy. Could gardening be a helpful tool for your mental well-being? By Vicki Spencer. And this is from Colorado Country Life, May 2021 edition. This year might be remembered as the year of healing. At least that's my hope as more and more people turn to gardening. For many years, I only thought about my gardens as serving specific, tangible functions. They provided my family with fresh fruits and vegetables to eat and graced my home with abundantly beautiful flowers. But last year, after the coronavirus outbreak led to increased isolation, I began to reflect upon my mental state while gardening. Although it took a pandemic for me to become consciously aware of gardening's therapeutic value, medical professionals have known this for a long time. In the 19th century, psychiatrists began documenting the positive impact of gardening on individuals with mental illness. In the 1940s and 1950s, healthcare workers began observing additional therapeutic benefits while working to rehabilitate World War II veterans. Today, the American Society of Landscape Architects recognizes a specialized field of study that embraces the concept of designing plant-dominated environments with the purpose of facilitating interaction with nature's healing properties. There are endless ways to design therapeutic gardens, but the primary focus is on providing convenience and enjoyment to people with a diverse range of abilities. When considering accessibility, garden paths may be wide and gently graded with raised beds that are attainable while standing or sitting in a chair. Plant selections may be sensory-oriented with a focus on color, texture, or fragrance to stimulate memory or senses, such as hearing, smell, and touch, as an alternative to sight. Horticultural therapy may include planning, planting, and caring for the garden. These activities help with socialization, decision-making, and cognition. Therapy may also include weeding, watering, and harvesting to help strengthen muscles, improve balance, and increase endurance. These are just a few reasons why therapeutic gardens have gained popularity in healthcare settings. When volunteering for the Denver Botanic Gardens, I met visitors from across the state who enjoyed programs for seniors and those with special needs. Although many programs were canceled last year, the Denver Botanic Gardens is providing limited programs this year while complying with state guidelines. For instance, the Chatfield Farms Veterans Program began accepting applications in mid-February to connect veterans to farming careers through a 21-week training session. In addition to building job skills, veterans have an opportunity to reconnect with nature and develop relationships with other service members. 
SPARK, a cultural program for people with memory loss, is offered in partnership with the Alzheimer's Association to provide participants with mild memory loss an opportunity to explore the world of plants in an interactive virtual environment. Register online or call 720-865-3500 to participate in monthly sessions. All of us can benefit from the therapeutic value of gardens. If you have never gardened before or don't have space, perhaps try a container garden. If gardening is not for you, simply walking through the park or enjoying plants at your local garden center could uplift your spirits. When frost danger passes in Boulder, making gardening safe. See the average date of the final spring freeze in Boulder and when to start planting the most popular items for the garden. By Amber Fisher. And this is from Patch.com. The right time to start planting seeds outside varies by year, and even more so by region. But an old farmer's almanac tool can help gardeners in Boulder plan ahead by finding the typical date of the final spring frost. The average final spring frost date in Boulder is May 9th. This opens up a 144-day growing season, as the typical first frost date in the fall is October 1st. There's a 30% probability of frost occurring after May 9th, as the date is determined using National Oceanic and Atmospheric Historical Data from 1981 to 2010, and is not set in stone, the old farmer's almanac said. May 9th represents the average date of the final light freeze in Boulder. A light freeze, according to the almanac, occurs when the temperature dips between 29 and 32 degrees Fahrenheit, at which point tender plants can be killed. A moderate freeze between 25 and 28 degrees is destructive to most vegetation, and a severe freeze at anything under 24 degrees can do heavy damage to most garden plants, according to the almanac. As the pandemic's second gardening season gets underway in Boulder, the Old Farmer's Almanac has another tool to help gardeners decide when to plant which crops. In Boulder, the tool shows it's usually best to start planting these seedlings or transplants on the following dates. Basil between May 9th and May 30th, bell peppers between May 16th and May 30th, cucumbers between May 23rd and June 6th, kale, plant as soon as possible, up to May 2nd, lettuce, plant as soon as possible, up to May 23rd, oregano, between May 11th and June 1st, rosemary, between May 16th and June 8th, sage, between May 9th and May 30th. Thyme, between May 9th and June 30th. Tomatoes, between May 16th and June 6th. Zucchini, between May 23rd and June 6th. You can look up when to plant other crops in the Old Farmer's Almanac calendar. Just type in your zip code or city.
The 2021 gardening season is expected to be busy, just like the 2020 season was, due to the coronavirus pandemic and related shutdown orders. The pandemic led to a global gardening boom, according to a 2020 report from Agriculture Week, as seed companies saw unprecedented interest. The Burpee Seed Company sold more seeds last March, when the pandemic began, than any other month in their 144-year history, Agriculture Week reported. And Johnny's selected seed notched a 270% increase in sales during the 2020 gardening season. The brisk seed sales don't just reflect an interest in a pastime that makes social distancing easy. Experts say gardening is therapeutic. There are certain very stabilizing forces in gardening that can ground us when we are feeling shaky, uncertain, and terrified. Rutgers University professor Joel Flagler told Agriculture Week. It's these predictable outcomes and predictable rhythms of the garden that are very comforting right now. Even before the pandemic, mental health experts pointed to gardening as a way to deal with stress. Gardening provides physical exercise and promotes healthier eating. But it can also reduce worry among people who consider themselves perfectionists, psychologist Seth Gillihan said. Given the lack of control we have, gardening can be a good antidote for perfectionism, Gillihan wrote in a 2019 Psychology Today blog. No matter how carefully you plan and execute your garden, there are countless factors you can't predict. Invasions by bugs, inclement weather, hungry rodents. With so many things out of their control, perfectionism is a waste of time, he said. So gardeners may ask themselves, why bother to be perfect? Shotweed, a love story. How I became smitten with a weed by Wolf Bowden. And this is from Green Prince, Spring 2021 edition. I think these weeds stowed away in the horse manure, I say, pointing at some new squatters in our garden, tucked up under the base of the red Russian kale. Well, just pull them out, my wife says. I would, Amelia, but they're like landmines. Watch this, I say, reaching down to barely brush the seed pods on one of the weeds. The pods explode into a rain of seeds so small I'll never be able to sort them from the soil. Amelia retreats into the house, and I'm left staring at my new nemesis. Once I spot one exploding weed, like morale mushrooms in a leafy forest, I see them everywhere, nestled in beside the base of the blueberry bushes, scattered in the strawberries, even tucked in the shadows of the tomatoes. I speak to them out loud, as I often do to my vegetables. What shall I call you? Little bomb weeds? And how can I get you out of my garden? I grab my phone and dial my friend John, leaving muddy fingerprints on the screen. 
Oh, I know those buggers, he says. I call them artillery weeds. My neighbor calls them shot weeds and sometimes gets drunk and fights fire with fire. He uses a shotgun. Does he shoot squirrels too, I ask? Yeah, he says. His shotgun is his number one garden tool. I understand his rage. John tells me I've got to pull the shot weeds out before they go to seed. But it's too late. The pods are everywhere, ready to pop. I try dropping plastic bags over them, hoping to snatch weed and seed in one swift move. They explode before I can close the bags, dropping seeds into the soil. I try a torch. But that only makes them angry, and several scorched seeds land in my beard. I react by dunking my head in the birdbath. It's warm and slimy. I scream, and Amelia runs outside. Honey, you're soaked, Amelia says, smiling. But I don't see any burns in your beard. I came out to call you in for lunch. Tofu and broccoli? Reluctantly, I come in. I'm tired of broccoli, I say. And while we're sitting here eating, the shotweeds are out there spreading. You're getting obsessed, Amelia says. Maybe you should take a garden break for a few days. She's right. At night, I can't sleep. My shallow dreams are filled with shotweed, and I begin to understand why some farmers burn their fields to kill seeds. Every time I even think about pulling a shotweed, my heart races as if I'm on a bomb squad. So the next morning, I take a walk to the park to get away from the shotweed. But it follows me. There's a clump at the edge of the swing set. And two kids are having fun touching the pods and watching them explode. Their laughter makes my chest clench. You wouldn't laugh if those were in your garden, I say. The kids glare at me in silence as their mom squints to assess my motives. I wave and smile. Then, as I'm about to walk away, the little girl picks a stalk of shot weed and eats it. Hey, I don't know if you should eat that, I say, lunging to try to stop her. Get away from my children, their mom screams, rising from the park bench and swinging her purse, as if she's going to pummel me. I scoot backwards fast. I'm sorry, I say. She was eating a weed. I just wanted to help. That's Harry Bittercress, their mom says. It's edible. Really? I ask. Shot weed is edible? Yes, it's good for the kids. My sister is an herbalist. Wow. Okay, please forgive me. I've got it all over my garden, and I thought it might be toxic. On the contrary, she says. It's a brassica, full of nutrients. That's really good news, I say. Thank you. When I get home, I bend low and begin to pluck shotweed leaves, stuffing them into my mouth and chewing slowly savoring their peppery flavor. Amelia spots me from the window. You've gone crazy, she shouts, stepping outside. Honey, it's okay. They're cruciferous. Look at the little cross in the white flower of this one. You just figured this out on your own, she asks. Dubious. A lady in the park told me, I explain. 
So you're eating weeds based on advice from random strangers now? Is that it? No, these are really good greens. Try some, I suggest. Not before I read up on this and make sure you're not crazy, she says, heading inside to our garden library. I grab a bowl, fill it with shotweed, and step inside. You're right, Amelia says. Cardamine hirsute, or hairy bittercress, or shotweed, is in fact edible. So, I guess you can declare victory in your war against shotweed. If you can't beat them, eat them, I say. Shotweed, I love you, in salad. It isn't cheating to copy Mother Nature by Gary Raham. And this is from Colorado Gardener, Early Spring 2021 edition. While cheating on tests is rarely a good thing, winning nature's survival test should prove to be the exception. When it comes to R&D, research and development, nature has been testing the survival capabilities of all kinds of organisms for at least 3.8 billion years. We humans shouldn't consider it cheating to borrow some of her best ideas to stay alive and healthy as a species for a long time to come. Biologist Janine M. Benyus has been advocating this approach for decades now. Her Biomimicry Institute offers annual prizes to interdisciplinary teams of university students and professionals who find nature-inspired ways to solve some of the problems that human growth and technology create. Biologists use the term mimicry to describe the phenomenon of one organism trying to look like something it's not, usually to protect itself. While camping, for example, I've found caterpillars of geometrid moths that look exactly like aspen twigs. Their disguise is nearly perfect until they decide to move or set up their twig impersonation act inappropriately in the middle of a log. But mimicking nature means more than adopting clever disguises. It involves copying many of the ways nature has devised to solve serious problems, like disposing of waste, recycling water and other resources, building durable structures, and much more. The Swiss engineer Georges de Mestre invented Velcro after noticing that burdock plants used a clever design involving hooks and loops to fasten its burrs to the fur of de Mestre's dog, ensuring the dispersal of the plant's seeds. Now we use the burdock plant's clever design to keep our shoes fastened and our pants from falling down. Often, keeping one's pants on has great merit, but solving climate change, air pollution, habitat destruction, and loss of fresh water seem like much more daunting problems, and they are. Nevertheless, nature routinely keeps our systems in balance for eons. As Benyus has said, the real survivors are the Earth inhabitants that have lived millions of years without consuming their ecological capital, the base from which all abundance flows.
Those are the kinds of tricks nature has devised, and we humans must learn. The 2020 Biomimicry Global Design Challenge finalists demonstrate ingenious ways to use some of nature's survival tricks to solve serious real-world problems. Gardeners may be especially drawn to projects called Nutribarrier and Pranavayu. Nutribarrier helps solve the problem of fertilizer runoff from the agricultural lands that lead to algal blooms and dead zones in offshore waters. The group decided there must be some way to hold fertilizers near plants longer rather than allowing them to wash quickly downstream. Farmers could use fewer chemicals and rivers would have more time to recycle toxic runoff. Ultimately, they drew inspiration from an unlikely mixture of frogs, acorns, hagfish, and the architecture of the DNA molecule. Frogs, for example, beat their legs while mating to produce a cocoon of bubbles that protects their eggs. Squirrels bury acorns, not all of which are rediscovered, so they have time to germinate into oak trees. When threatened, hagfish release a repulsive gel that discourages predators. The architecture of the DNA double helix provides a model for compact storage. The group combined these elements in such a way that they engineered a double helical, nutrient-filled, porous barrier around plants that allowed for time-released plant fertilization and significantly less runoff. The Pranavayu air filtration system, designed by another group, drew inspiration from floral stamens and spider webs. The group wanted to find a way to filter the air rickshaw drivers inhaled in Delhi, India, where breathing the air is like smoking 50 cigarettes a day. They noted that electrostatic charges between pollen grains build up at the tip of stamens and on the slender legs of pollinators. To create a filter to trap air pollutants, they devised a multi-layered system consisting of charged, web-like meshes with sharply protruding structures to ensure a high charge at the apex and efficiently filter the air. So go ahead, you cheat a little on nature's survival test if it means preserving our clever, though often self-destructive, species. Nature won't mind if you look over her shoulder on the final exam. The plants and other creatures in your garden may be modeling just the techniques we need to thrive and prosper into the distant future. Not to mention avoid wardrobe malfunctions of all kinds. Botany Lane Greenhouse earns sustainably grown certification. Botany Lane Greenhouse, a locally owned and operated wholesale grower of plants and flowers, has been recognized for its leadership in environmental protection, social responsibility, and quality products. By meeting the highest performance levels under the three pillars of sustainability, Botany Lane earned the Veriflora Sustainably Grown Label, a certification program for sustainable horticulture and floriculture. 
Botany Lane grows annuals, perennials, succulents, herbs and veggies, tropical flowering and foliage plants from proven winners, Hollywood Hibiscus, Diamantina Mandevilla, Plant Select, and their own brands. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. We invite you to please stay tuned for our next program. This podcast is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, safer, healthier people. Family members provide the vast majority of long-term care for American Indian elders. The key to understanding caregiving in Indian country is to recognize the role of elders in the family and the community. The term elder has a special meaning in Indian communities because it's related to that person's contributions to their community, to their perceived value and wisdom. Taking care of an elder is a continuation of an ancient custom of extended family and lifelong care for family. But that tradition may be colliding with new realities as more Native people live away from their tribe's reservation, have more chronic health problems such as diabetes and obesity, and are less connected with tribal traditions and supports. Like almost all older adults, Indian elders prefer to stay at home in their community. The challenge is to develop support services that will allow frail elders to live in their community with their family. According to the 2000 census, there are about 265,000 American Indians and Alaskan Natives aged 65 and older, and they represent 6% of this population. It's estimated that the American Indian elder population will grow by more than 14% between 1995 and 2030, thus doubling the number of elders likely to need long-term care. American Indian and Alaskan Native families tend not to use the term caregiver to describe the care they give to a family member. Most caregivers see this as part of their duty, part of being Indian. These caregivers just say, I came to stay with my parents, or Mom needs help walking, so I help her walk. Nationwide, caregivers often deal with anger, resentment, guilt, depression, financial difficulties, isolation, and conflicts with family and work. However, American Indian and Alaskan Native caregivers are less likely to voice their difficulties compared to the general population. That's probably because caregiving among Native people is seen as part of family life and not as a burden. Nonetheless, these caregivers need education and training to help them manage the complex health needs of their elders. They also need help to navigate the health system to meet their elders' needs. Elders are not likely to leave the reservation to go where their children are because the reservation is their home and they may lose the benefits they get from living on the reservation, including health care. Therefore, many American Indian and Alaskan Native caregivers have to move back to the reservation to provide care to an older family member, giving up their jobs and other benefits of living in an urban environment. While caregivers often say they get satisfaction from their efforts, they usually provide care at the cost of their own time, money, and health, and often feel unprepared for their tasks. A study of family caregivers from five tribes found that they were most concerned about managing in-home medical care, dealing with psychosocial aspects of care, strains on family relations, and the negative effects on their personal health and well-being. 
The caregivers said they would like caregiver training and support groups, enhanced care coordination, adult daycare, and respite care. Respite care services give the caregiver a break by providing someone else to stay with the care recipient for a brief period of time or allowing the care recipient to stay a few hours in an adult daycare program or a few days in a nursing home. Respite care is the most utilized caregiver service in Indian country. The main sources of caregiver support available in Indian country are Medicaid home and community-based care services, Native American Caregiver Support Program funds available under the Older Americans Act, and state and tribal dollars. More work needs to be done to ensure adequate services for elders and their family caregivers in Indian country. What elders want is clear, to remain at home and maintain their traditions. To help their elders meet that goal, tribes must understand the needs of their aging population, the demands of caregiving, existing caregiving policies, and ways to access funding to support caregiving programs. That means becoming familiar with complex state and federal policies and learning how to apply for and win grants and find other sources of funding. Whatever direction long-term care for the American Indian and Alaskan Native population takes, it is sure to reflect the tribal traditions of honoring elders, keeping them at the center of the family, and keeping them at home. For more information about caregiving, please visit www.cdc.gov slash aging slash caregiving. Brought to you by the CDC's Healthy Aging Program. Healthy Aging, Healthy People. For the most accurate health information, visit www.cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO 24-7.